next investigator I chatted with was Dr. Charles Fuchs, who commented on papers presented in GI cancers. And to begin, he talked about one of the most discussed presentations in the entire ASCO meeting, the so-called TML trial, evaluating the continuation of bevacizumab on disease progression in metastatic colorectal cancer. I think a very interesting study, highly anticipated, namely after failing frontline chemotherapy plus bevacizumab, is there a role for continuation of bevacizumab with your second-line chemotherapy? We had long heard about the BRIGHT registry, which in an observational cohort suggested that if you had progressed on frontline chemotherapy plus bevacizumab, those patients who were continued on bevacizumab had a longer survival not a randomized trial, an observational study, always the risk of bias and confounding. Namely, did the docs who continued their patients on BEV, were those the patients who would have done better just because they were better patients and not because of the bevacizumab? So although the BRIGHT study was hypothesis generating, it certainly wasn't proof. The proof had to come from a randomized clinical trial, and this study, often referred to as the TML study, did that. Patients who had failed frontline chemotherapy plus bevacizumab, and as you know, that could have been either an oxaloplatin-based or renatecan-based chemotherapy, were then at progression entered in the study and randomized to the alternative chemotherapy plus bevacizumab or the alternative chemotherapy alone. Namely, if you had failed Fulfiri-Bev, you would presumably get Fulfox-Bev or Fulfox alone. And much like you would expect in a study that was more commonly enrolled in Europe, was a European study, more patients got arenatecan-based therapy than oxaloplatin because there tends to be a greater interest in frontline arenatecan in Europe. The results are, I think, interesting and encouraging, namely the patients who got bevacizumab continuation in second line had a significant improvement in overall survival, progression-free survival, and certainly a trend towards an improved response. And the overall survival benefit, which is significant, translated into approximately 1.4 months. So modest, but we're talking about second line. So the magnitude of differences is always going to be attenuated in second line, but it's statistically significant. The tolerability looked very reasonable. I don't think there were any surprises with the patients who got bevacizumab. So I think that this trial is important and probably does impact clinical practice in a meaningful way. So have there been situations up to now in your own practice where you've continued BEV beyond progression, and are you more inclined to do it now? Well, I have to admit I have done it. And in fact, it's interesting if you look at observational data in various forms across the U.S., and we did a study of this across U.S. centers, somewhere in the range of 35 to 45 percent of patients continue BEV into the second line. That's what the Bright Registry showed. We did a study using a chemotherapy order entry database across the U.S. to monitor how docs were practicing, and we found something similar. That is, 35 to 45% of patients are continuing BEV. I'd say that's probably the proportion in my practice. However, in light of this study, I think that I would be very comfortable to routinely continue BEV given this survival benefit. Getting back to the oral colorectal session, which really had some stuff to think about this year, we had already seen the Velour study looking at the VEGF trap of Flibercep 
and kind of along the lines of continuation of an anti-angiogenic on disease progression was Abstract 3505, where Dr. Allegra presented data on the impact of chemo aflibercept based on whether or not the patient had prior BEV. Right. So an important study, Valora, as some background, as you are aware, looked at the use of VEGF trap, this alternative approach to binding the VEGF ligand, where patients who had failed frontline chemotherapy, who had progressed, were then randomized to Fulfiri or Fulfiri plus aflibercept. And needless to say, patients had to have failed an oxaliplatin-based first-line chemotherapy, or alternatively, they had to have failed oxali in the adjuvant setting within six months. Those patients who received aflibercept as part of that trial did have a statistically significant improvement in survival, so a positive study. What I think is interesting from Carmen's presentation at ASCO, this most recent turn, is that 28% of patients had previously received BEV. So the patients who had failed frontline therapy had to have failed an oxaliplatin-based therapy, but it could have included BEV, and in 28% of patients, bevacizumab was part of that. The results suggest that the benefit of a flibercep was present whether or not you had gotten first-line bevacizumab. In fact, it's somewhat of a obtuse analysis for most of us, but they did something called a test for statistical interaction. Namely, did the benefit of a flibercep differ whether you had previously received bevacizumab? And what the test said is that there isn't a significant difference, namely the benefit of a flibercep was present whether or not you had previously received bevacizumab. George Fisher in his ASCO Highlights discussion commented on the graphs they showed that seemed to support that while both groups did benefit statistically significantly, the patients who hadn't had prior BEV seemed to do a little bit better with a flibercept. Well, to be fair, you're right. For overall survival, it looks like the forest plot is a little bit better for the patients who hadn't received BEV. But on the other hand, if you looked at progression-free survival, it was a little bit better if you had previously received BEV. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of statistical noise, right? I mean, if you flip a coin 100 times, is it 50 times going to be heads and 50 tails? I mean, there's always some element of chance when you get into these numbers. So I don't know that even if survival looks a little better for the patients who didn't receive BEV, whether that's really a meaningful difference or just that's a slight chance difference between one group and the other. The test for statistical interaction is supposed to be a dispassionate way of looking at it, independent of our eyeball test. That test says there is no difference. So if a flibercept becomes available, you can imagine it would at least initially be in the second line setting, but now with the TML trial of BEV1 progression, this kind of becomes an alternative for people to consider in addition to a flibercept. How do you see that playing out? It's a great question, and I don't know that there's a clear answer. The benefit of bevacizumab in this setting in TML for patients in second line looks about the same as the benefit that was achieved in the Valor study with a flibercept or VEGF trap. So are they comparable agents? Do they achieve the same benefit in second line? Perhaps if you do these flawed cross-trial comparisons and which is a better approach, I don't know. 
I was really interested by some of the cartoon graphics I saw at ASCO looking at the mechanisms of action of BEV versus of Libercep. And it kind of seems like even though both bind VEGF, they do so to sort of a different spectrum of VEGF ligands. Oh, I think you're right. In fact, look, it's a different molecule. The aflibercept, as you know, is basically the VEGF receptor bound to the FC portion of human antibody. And so it binds anything the receptor does as opposed to the more specific antibody. And so would soak up any of the possible ligands. So potentially there are other targets it might be hitting. But whether that translates into greater efficacy, greater potency for that molecule, we can only speculate. What do we know right now about the toxicity of aflibercept? Well, you know, I think that some has been made of the fact that if you look at the Valor study, that there seems to be an increase in chemotherapy-related toxicities for patients who got aflibercept as compared to the control arm. And in fact, as well, there is a modest rate of patients who quit the aflibercept arm prior to progression, that is withdrawal of consent or withdrawal because of toxicity. Does that mean that this particular molecule has greater toxicity? I'm not sure. There's definitely higher rates of grade 3, 4 events in bevacizumab compared to placebo. So, you know, can you really compare the two molecules across these studies to say one has greater toxicity as compared to the other? At least just by the nature of the way these molecules are designed, I don't know whether one would contribute more to chemotherapy-related toxicity than another. So albeit some has been made of that from the Valor study, it's not clear to me how they compare in terms of tolerability. So another important trial commented on by Dr. Fisher in his ASCO Highlights talk was the so-called CORRECT trial, looking at the TKI regorafenib, which we first heard about earlier this year at the GI Symposium. I think it's a very exciting study. This is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, hits multiple targets, one of which certainly important being the VEGF receptor. Patients who had failed all available therapies, so oxaloplatin, arenatecan, fluoroprimidines, 100% of them had gotten bevacizumab, and if they had a KRAS wild-type tumor, they had failed an EGFR antibody. So they had to have failed everything, and at that point were randomized to either regorafenib or placebo. And what we see is a statistically significant improvement in both overall survival and progression-free survival, such that one has to, I think, recognize the value of this for patients who have failed all available therapies. So I think it's an important result. It gives our patients who many of whom are doing reasonably well, have exhausted everything we have to offer, and now have this additional option. In fact, I think it's pretty telling that the study enrolled 760 patients way ahead of schedule. And I think that represents the fact that there are a lot of patients in this situation who are looking for treatment options. There was another multi-kinase TKI PTK787 that Randy Heck presented a few years ago at ASCO in a huge, very negative phase three trial. You wonder why it's different with regorafenib. So in theory, a lot of these drugs are similar. That is, regorafenib is similar to PTK787, which was the trial that Randy presented, similar to serafinib, sinitinib, sidarinib. There's one big difference between regorafenib 
and all those other molecules, which appear somewhat similar. All the others had been involved in randomized trials of chemotherapy versus chemotherapy plus that TKI, and they all failed. Here's the difference. Regorafenib is being tested as a single agent. So you might have asked, well, what if actually Novartis had looked at PTK787 against placebo as a single agent? Maybe these drugs don't partner well with chemotherapy. I guess we will find out. What about toxicity with regorafenib? You get a pattern that's not dissimilar from serafinib. Namely, you get hand, foot, you get some GI toxicity, and obviously you get some degree of hypertension. So it's very similar, for instance, as compared to serafinib that you know we use for actually a number of indications, including hepatocellular carcinoma. Where do you see things heading with this agent? I presume that it's going to get approved either the latter part of this year or early next year. And once it's approved, I would think it would enter into the marketplace quite successfully because patients need options. What about abstract 3507, the pooled meta-analysis of the impact of surgery for primary colon cancer in patients with synchronous metastatic disease? Yeah, so this is an interesting retrospective study asking the I think very important question in the treatment of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, that is in patients where their metastases are unresectable, should we leave the primary in or should it be resected? There was a very thoughtful presentation and ultimate paper from Memorial Sloan Kettering of almost 200 patients suggesting that you could leave the primary in and that the event rate, that is the need for subsequent surgery in these patients who were given standard systemic chemotherapy was low. That is, it's safe to leave the primary in. There have also been retrospective studies that have taken populations looking at patients with metastatic colon cancer, comparing those individuals who had had their primary tumors out to those where the primary tumors were left in place, and have suggested that the patients who underwent resection of the primary had a better survival. The problem with those studies is who gets their primary removed and who doesn't. Patients who have a better performance status, who are younger, who have less burden of cancer, are more likely to get the surgery, and those that are worse off are not going to get the surgery. So is the analysis simply that sick people do worse? So what this recent analysis did, and there have been several like it, is to look through four randomized trials conducted in France The randomized trials were chemotherapy questions, but to use that data where all the potential confounding variables have been extracted to see if you could do an analysis where you adjust for everything to really hopefully extract what was the independent effect of having your primary out. Again, not a randomized study. And what they find is that the patients who had their primary resected have a significantly better survival you're still left with the fact that it's not a randomized trial. Is it potentially biased or confounded by who got their primary out, that is, healthier people? It doesn't give you the answer, but it's an important question. There are two randomized trials being conducted in Europe, one reasonably far along in the United Kingdom, in which patients, just like this, metastatic disease, being randomly assigned to chemotherapy or surgery followed by chemotherapy, where the surgery is limited to resection of the primary colon cancer. And that study of 500 patients conducted in Great Britain, 
should give us an answer. A similarly designed study of 350 people is being conducted in the Netherlands. And so both studies will give us, I think, a very clear answer of whether we should be routinely removing the primary cancer to improve survival. So let's talk about other GI cancers and begin with the chemo study, just for old time's sake. The Perdige 5 Accord 17 trial of chemo radiation with Fulfox versus cisplatin 5-FU in esophageal cancer. Right. I think an important study, namely, we've all been accustomed to using 5-FU cisplatin and radiation in localized esophageal cancer as a preoperative therapy or as a definitive chemoradiation therapy. So very comfortable. We've used it for ages. There have been some suggestions that maybe we should be getting out of the business of using fluoroprimidines. There's also been suggestions that maybe Fulfox is a simpler and better tolerated regimen. What this study showed is that whether you give 5-FU cisplatin radiation or Fulfox plus radiation, you get the same result. That is to say that Fulfox plus radiation is a perfectly acceptable approach for chemoradiation for esophageal cancer. Both probably similarly tolerated. So for the most part, I think Fulfox is a perfectly reasonable approach, probably logistically easier than FU platinum. Now, the one caveat to this French study is the results of the previous CROSS study published at ASCO, where they use carboplatin paclitaxel radiation as a chemoradiation regimen and showed, I think, excellent results. So if you're going to use a fluoroprimidine, Fulfox plus chemoradiation, pretty reasonable. If you like the results from the CROSS study, and I thought it was a very good study, well-powered, the carbotax plus radiation, I think, is a very well-tolerated and an efficacious regimen. So one paper at the oral session that I think a lot of clinicians would find very pragmatic was abstract 4008, looking at the prophylactic use of urea-based cream on hand-foot skin reaction with serafinib and advanced HCC. Yeah, this is not, I have to admit, it's not something that I have followed over the years, but I agree with you. Anything we can do to improve the experience and quality of life for our patients is worthwhile. These investigators showed that the individuals who used this urea-based hand cream and foot cream had a significant reduction in hand-foot syndrome, which for serafinib can be rate-limiting for many of our patients, not exclusively, but to the extent that it reduced that toxicity, I think it's wonderful. A key issue with novel agents is whether they can be tolerated long-term. How often is dermatologic toxicity a game-changing issue in serafinib for HCC in your practice? I probably see it as being a major issue in 10 or 15% of my patients. So I don't see it to be a very common problem. For me, although I think, look, serafinib has a survival benefit. It's an important component of care for HCC. But for me, the bigger complaint for my patients is more the constitutional symptoms, the fatigue, particularly at the starting dose of 400 milligrams twice a day.